Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this is the second of our two-part podcast series from the 2019 New York and London Film Festivals. In the last episode, we discussed Marriage Story, Pain and Glory, Baccarat, Judy, Monos, and um, a handful of other smaller films. Um, And in this one, we are going to be discussing a few more. But basically, there's a few that Morgan and I both watched and a few that uh, one or other of us watched. So we are going to start off with Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, followed by the new David Copperfield movie, which is excellent, um, and some other big films, including The Irishman. So, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. If you've not heard of this one, it is a French historical drama. It is directed by Céline Sciamma. And it is, uh, it's very good. It's very good, Morgan. (laughs) Very good. That's my fucking dumbass description of this film, which is possibly the best film of the year. Strong contender. The challenge is go into this film and don't cry. If salty tears don't emerge from your human face, then fuck off. Well, I didn't cry during this movie, Gabby. Fuck off, so then, we Morgan. may have to suspend <laughs> this podcast. Yeah, no, I mean I, I'm a crier. Um, but this is this is a film that people cry at, but just to emphasize, it is not like, oh, gonna go in for a tragedy, gonna go in for a lesbian tragedy. No. It is fun and it teaches you about the experience of human life and women. This this director invented the concept of women. <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit of a tragedy. Yeah, a little bit yeah, of a tragedy. Yeah, but you know? like it is, it is. But it's not like oh, I'm gonna go and sit down and just spend two hours feeling bad. No, you're gonna go spend two hours, and by the end of it, you'll be like, I finally understand women. I've <laughs> met a woman. I have seen women depicted on screen for the first time in my life. The way that when women look at each other, when they do their jobs, when they experience <laughs> life together, and there aren't any men nearby. <laughs> Art. Oh, oh my No, no Morgan's crying. <laughs> so I, this is one of the films I saw at the New York Film Festival when I was fucked up on migraine medication and kind of a zombie. I also saw Pain and Glory in this state and The Irishman, which we will get to. So I, I mean, I love this movie and feel fully capable of discussing it, but I do want to see it again because I feel like I perhaps would have cried if I had not been a zombie on new medication that I am not currently taking because it did not agree with me at all. So I loved it. I did not have the same affect response as you (laughs) because I was kind of in a zombie state, but I agree that I think it's one of the best movies I've seen this year easily top five this has been an interesting year for movies brief sidebar i have not seen a lot of stuff i've loved but the stuff that i put like at the top has i think was amazing and this is one of them so uh saline Skia's last movie was this french film girlhood which uh i don't remember super well but i remember really liking and it's uh stylistically very very different from this one I, there's a lot of handheld camera stuff it takes place in uh current day paris i mean she's relatively prolific she's written quite a lot of movies and yeah. she's directed five maybe five or yeah, six yeah i'm i'm very curious to watch the other ones now whereas this film takes place in i think 1760 was the the date on the yeah, film it's, it's like website late 18th century britain well it was funny everyone was like late 18th century like you know toward the beginning of the of the 19th and i was like well that was when the revolution was happening so that's not when this movie takes place and also the dresses are clearly slightly earlier yes thank you come on people (laughs) (laughs) um but 
in accordance with the time period and the type of story that it's telling. Um, I don't think there's any handheld camera in this movie. All the compositions are very deliberate and precise. And it's very straightforward isn't the word I'm looking for, but um, just sort of... Self-contained. It's a very, you know, the the concept is easy to explain. The main characters are, well, there's, I guess, nominally the protagonist, although it is really a two-person film, but the protagonist, Marianne, she's a portrait artist and her job is to paint Eloise who has to have a, paint, a portrait painted of her to send to her potential future husband as a selfie so that he knows what she looks like which is how you sell off your daughters in historical Europe um, and she is understandably not enthusiastic about having her portrait painted for this endeavor and it's kind of about the conflict that occurs with that awkward relationship and um we all know this is a romance, so obviously in some regard those characters come together. Yeah, I mean, kind of thematically, it is very explicitly a film about the female gaze, obviously, because it is about a woman kind of watching another woman and painting her portrait, but it's also kind of retaliation against the concept of the muse, you know, the idea of like one this woman being really inspirational and kind of artists latching onto their muse and then being inspired by them because it's very clearly kind of a participatory experience. And it is also depicting the kind of everyday lives of women in a way that I really don't think I've seen in any depth in any other historical drama. And I have seen a lot of historical dramas. I mean, even more so than something like The Favourite, you know, because kind of the whole point of The Favourite is that the characters in that are in such a bizarre social situation, they are not having a normal day-to-day life. Whereas these characters, you know, obviously they're wealthy enough to be able to hire an artist but you know they're doing normal stuff like for most of the film you have these two young women and uh, the maid who works in the house are together alone in their house and are just kind of making food together and going for walks and it just feels kind of very realistic in a way that isn't seen because generally you know historical dramas don't sit down and do that sort of kitchen sink stuff because it's not part of the sort of sweeping epicness of the classic costume romance or these films are made by men and they just don't really think that much about these day-to-day things i don't know i don't know if i'm i'm, I'm finding it hard to put it well but like the film <laughs> perfectly depicts life well our mutual friend charlotte and i have been, have been having a lot of conversations recently independent of this movie actually and then it turned out this movie was a great way to talk about this about uh fiction about the past that successfully or unsuccessfully imagines the actual lived experience. Yes, this of is that something past, that I think right? about all the time. <laughs> so, one of the most annoying things to me about fiction that attempts to do that poorly is when people transpose our current sort of political and sociopolitical ideologies to characters from the past, right? So, the most common way this happens is that you'll get like male characters in the 18th or 19th century who have unbelievably progressive views on gender or race, but often these books are just about white people. So it usually manifests in terms of gender or about democracy, but usually, again, you're getting this sense of like, they just love their wives so much and they support their daughters and they think that they too are equal and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, I don't know. Like, I don't think most men actually thought like that, right? And if you read the actual novels from that period, you sometimes get male characters who are 
like see their female partners as real people and are very supportive and interested in them. And it's not like all men in the past were monsters, but like our way of thinking about gender and the way that people thought about gender in the past and sexuality and race just were not the same, right? Like this just wasn't the same in the past. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, yeah, this is like why I and so many people are really attached to black sales, which you can listen to our episode on that. That show kind of is more realistic and ambiguous about kind of issues of sexuality and race and like there are main characters who are initially introduced as like here's like a really relatable person later on it's like they're okay with slave ownership because it's the fucking 18th century and like they don't have words to describe queerness they don't kind of delineate like oh this character is bisexual because it's just not like a concept yeah like this this film feels very authentic like that like philosophically authentic yes and what what i love so much about this movie is that it is demonstrating that people could have sort of perhaps radical ideas about the way they wanted to live while also being very rooted in the period in which they were living so the painter character marianne who's played by noemi merlon is to sort of taking over this business from her father, who was a painter. And there were a lot of female portrait painters in the later part of the 18th century in France. It was a, I mean, a lot, comparatively speaking, right? But like, it was definitely I mean, probably the most famous painting you've seen of Marie Antoinette was painted by a woman. Yes, correct. I wrote about this a little bit in my review on the Patreon if people want to see more. Um, but uh, it is very plausible that a woman could be doing this, especially if her father had that job. But you get the sense that like she is not interested in getting married. Like she has decided this for herself. She obviously knows about herself that like she is interested in women and not men. And um, that she has sort of made certain calculations about the way that she wants to live in the context of her society. Right. And obviously you always had people doing that when that was available to them in whatever sort of way. And then she's interacting with this other woman who really doesn't want to get married off to this guy and is a very kind of feisty person and is really intelligent and they have these interesting interactions that obviously lead to a romance. But she is very aware that actually she doesn't really have any choice and she is going to have to get married to this person. Like, that's just the way that it is. And the movie does such a great job of balancing those sort of contradictory feelings, right? There was a great quote from Greta Gerwig um, in an interview about the upcoming Little Women movie, which obviously no one has seen yet, about how the characters in that book were like the most modern people who had lived up to that point, right? So they're not thinking of themselves as old-fashioned. They're thinking of themselves just as the people who were living then. And I think that that's a really good way to think about this movie too, that these women aren't thinking about themselves as living in an antiquated time. They're thinking about themselves just as contemporary people and they want to have interesting lives and experiences, but are constrained in certain ways. And the movie takes them completely seriously. The costumes and hair and makeup are done in a really smart way that isn't particularly fancy like they don't really care about their hair in a way i've never seen in a historical movie like this right well because they're not on show right because it's like they are literally spending the whole thing in this one house and the surrounding countryside this film has like a rare piece of european historical costuming where i was like what is this i've not seen it before which i haven't properly researched yet but basically they wear this particular kind of headscarf when they're having to go out 
outside when it's windy and it looks really cool and it kind of it's like a face covering that looks almost a little bit like a niqab but like I've never seen that in paintings and I don't know if it's something that the director made up like she she definitely participates a lot in the costume design of her films or if it's something that's like a real historical detail but it looks really cool and one of the things that I kept thinking about with the hair in this movie which I have no idea if it was intentional or not, but kind of the way they're sort of making sure their hair isn't windblown and the fact they have such shiny and luscious hair. This was during the period when they did not have the same hair washing as we do now. The regular hair washing situation, it was more like regular hair brushing. So hair texture was completely different at this point. And I was just like, I just I wonder if this was the goal or if they both just have amazing <laughs> hair or what. But it's like, this was, this was not during the soapy hair era. You're only soaping your hair like once every three weeks. Yeah. And the dresses that they wear also are very nondescript. There's like one fancy dress they use for the portrait painting yeah. process. I mean, they basically each have one uniform, you know? Yes. Which which was how it, it was. Yeah. Like people didn't have a zillion dresses yeah. because clothes were expensive. And um, it, I just think it's so smart about all the historical stuff and the ability and willingness to actually make that effort to think about how people lived in the past. I appreciate so much. The favorite I was thinking about too, because that that movie could not be more different from this, but is obviously engaged with history in an interesting way. But what that movie is doing is drawing on um, 18th century literature in a very specific way. Like all that kind of yeah. grotesque body stuff was written about. Yeah. A and lot. also kind of comedy of manners and that sort of thing. Yes. Whereas this movie is, not doing that at all and it's obviously french which is drawing on a different different thing and it's not exactly it's not like there's referring to a literature particularly but again the fact that it's so sort of still and that the narrative unfolds in such a deliberate way it's not bombastic at all feels very literary to me in a way and kind of of that period in a way that i liked and um, all the painting stuff also is just, I love art history. I'm a huge art history buff. This isn't my particular favorite period of Western painting, but um, it is so smart on all of that. Literally, they show a lot of the painting actually taking place, which I love. Yeah, kind of the, the practical creative process. Yeah. Is, is really interesting. And then again, like portraiture was a huge thing in France at this time, obviously as everywhere. But what I was referring to in the women is obviously germane here. And then there are other ways that art gets drawn in with the muse stuff that you were talking about. And then sort of bookends the beginning and the end of the film where you see uh, Marianne with paintings that she has done that are not portraits that I felt were just like brilliant. And one other painting at the end that we won't spoil that was also <laughs> perfect. Um, but also kind of the way the film is framed and shot, it is not framed and shot like art of this period, because to our eyes, that would look very corny. <laughs> um, but like, there are so many shots in this film where you're like, this is a pain. I mean, I think I was thinking about this more strangely enough than Morgan was, even though I think it was because shortly before seeing this film, like a couple of days before I'd seen The King, which I, you could read my review of it if you like. It's sort of like a not Shakespeare, but based on Shakespeare historical movie with Timothy Chalamet is Henry V. And it is aesthetically extraordinarily dull. It's a very grey film. They're like, oh, it's going to be a serious man film, so everything's grey. And then I saw that, and then kind of in between watching movies at the film festival, I kind of was popping into the National Gallery and the National Portrait Gallery during lunch breaks. And um, 
And I just kept thinking, like, I really wish that more historical dramas adopted elements of the correct, like, contemporary painting styles to just kind of illustrate, like, the way that people were looking at things during that period, you know? And there are definitely some films that sort of do that. There is, like, a bad historical film with Robert Downey Jr. that, like, really leans into all this sort of 18th century French folderol, which I really appreciated. Um, And, like, Dangerous Liaisons kind of does that as well. But this film, although it doesn't feel like it looks like a painting from the 1760s, there are just so many shots where you're looking at these, like, blue like waves and the framing of all of the images when they're kind of in the kitchen together just as a group of women working on stuff look like a Vermeer or something and also because of the type of light that they're using like I think this film may have been filmed entirely in natural light and candlelight although I couldn't swear to that it just adds to the kind of the way that all the kind of shadows work on people's skin and that sort of thing and they're like the the interior walls <laughs> she said at the at a talk that sh- that was not deliberately framed to look like a painting yes. yeah i heard that too and i was like well good luck then whatever what fucking ever because <laughs> i don't i don't know that i agree with you about that i have i mean i have to see it again partially because i was like stoned um while, while watching but it she's making so much obvious reference textually to contemporary art of that period yeah which is not in the visual style of the movie no, because it's not it's not relevant and i mean i think it's just a very well shot film <laughs> like the the sort of vermeer stuff is so not germane no no to... i mean it's not i th- I think it's entirely possible because like she has literally said she wasn't doing that on purpose but it was like it just kept coming into my head like oh this shot looks like this particular i mean obviously it could just be pattern recognition you know but especially kind of the interior scenes yeah i think it's a sign just of like a well-made <laughs> the film movie. is good <laughs> because obviously a lot of those images are very iconic and are kind of in your brain in general if you are a visual person. I mean, every you know, um, she will have seen those Vermeer paintings, of course. But so many movies are made without any consideration for cinematography, right? And I think it is very fair to say the cinematography of this is painterly. I just don't know that it's necessarily deliberately referencing paintings. Oh, yeah. Um one of the things I enjoyed most about it was how deliberate it was. Like, you do not get the sense that this was made without having been storyboarded, right? I mean, I don't know that that was the case, but it certainly feels like it was storyboarded very precisely. And I enjoyed that very much because you just, you're in good hands. Yeah, I feel, I just feel like the message and all of the emotions have transmitted perfectly from the creator to me but not in a way that really felt like they were kind of holding my hand. I didn't feel like anything was too obvious. It just like it just worked precisely as intended. Well, it's an interesting contrast to something like Parasite, where like we mentioned this in the last episode, and I was like, I can't talk about this movie because literally to say anything is to And I mean, you could totally get spoiled for that movie and still have a good experience watching it, of course. Whereas with this, I feel like I could have told you most of what happens in this movie without having even seen it. There's very little surprising. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some stuff that we've not mentioned here because we want it to be a surprise, you know. But um, we've basically told you what the film is about. <laughs> and it's not that stuff doesn't happen in the movie, but like she comes to paint the portrait, the portrait gets painted, and they fall in love, and then they must be separated. Again, I could have told you that before watching the movie, but it's so well done and thoughtful, and the performances are so great. 
Um, Adele Hanel plays Eloise and is also extremely good. And it's just about the execution, right? And sometimes stories can be very satisfying in that way too. Like we have tropes for a reason and that's fine. And what was part of what was so pleasurable about this to me as well is that in many ways, the narrative does feel very familiar and very much like older stories from that period or from the 19th century. But obviously, it's about two women, which is not something that you would be reading from that period. And so she manages to both have this very classical, not old fashioned, but I mean, old fashioned in a way, like it's definitely drawing on stuff from the past kind of story, while also inverting it in a way that feels very fresh and new. A perfect movie. It is perfect. It's romantic, it's funny, it's natural, it's very beautiful to look at, and you'll finally see some women. Yeah, there are basically no men in this movie. I was just like, yes, yes. I just like, I've seen a couple of kind of, I think it was like Tumblr posts being like, there's no men in this film. And I was like, the only thing better than the, the idea of there being no men in this film is the fact that the men in this film were so inconsequential, these people forgot that there were men right. in the film. Because <laughs> technically there are some men in the film, but... <laughs> but they are... So a little consequence. Yeah. Oh, delicious. Um, so that's coming out in the US on December 6th and we'll platform after that. But like, obviously. Yeah, it's, it's coming out here in the UK in like January or February. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it a second time. I'm going to get like a wee break to let it settle in my mind and then make all my friends go with me. So <laughs> yeah, wonderful. You also saw uh, a film based on a 19th century novel. Yeah, another historical movie. Um, yeah, this is one of the ones that I saw that Morgan hasn't seen yet. So the new adaptation of David Copperfield by Armando Iannucci. I won't go into like over much depth here because Morgan hasn't seen it. And also I have a review at the Daily Dot you can read. But um, yeah, this just is like a super entertaining film. I would honestly recommend this film to any demographic. It's suitable for kids, it's suitable for old people, it's suitable for teens. You know, Armando Iannucci... I feel like probably most people are at least vaguely aware of his work. He is almost exclusively known for kind of political satire, very kind of biting style of comedy and things like The Thick of It and In the Loop in Britain and then in the US Veep. He's obviously done like a lot of other comedy stuff before in Britain, but he's definitely known for having quite a dark sense of humour. And then the feature film Death of Stalin last year. This film uh, is very different. It is very funny. It has a really exciting cast of famous British character actors led by Dev Patel as David Copperfield. And like, I, I had no idea what this film was going to be about before I watched it. Um, And I, you know, I found out after watching it. It's about David Copperfield <laughs> who goes up and down the social and economic ladder in Victorian England many times and engages with a variety of highly bizarre characters played by Matilda Swinton, Hugh Laurie, Peter Capaldi, Ben Whishaw, Paul Whitehouse, Ingerin Bernard, Benedict Wong, Gwendolyn Christie, various others. <laughs> there are many people in this film because it is a Charles Dickens novel. And yeah, it's comedy, but it's sort of a quite a different style of comedy to Armando Iannucci's other work. It's very kind of warm. It's obviously still satirical and there's kind of a lot of political stuff going on because it's about class divides in Britain. But in the end, it's quite optimistic and it'll make you feel good without being schmaltzy because God knows Armando Iannucci cannot do schmaltz. And it's also got like an unusually diverse cast for a British historical drama. Like obviously BBC dramas tend to be relatively diverse because I think there's like no rules within the BBC for that. But um, this definitely 
to go back to the king again, it was ridiculous to watch the king after watching this because the king is just 100% white men from wall to wall. And it's like, they, they literally do, like they had like two female characters even, it was just absurd. But this, you know, it's like obviously you've got Dev, Dev Patel in the lead role and you've got like various characters of various races and they have no particular interest in making sure that the characters look like they're related to each other because it's not relevant. It's like a surreal Victorian comedy and also like stage productions don't mind about that stuff. It shouldn't matter that much. It doesn't matter. And it's just really charming. And I think it's like, it's made right before Brexit and it's got this very kind of community spirited view of Britain that is very pleasurable and optimistic in a surprising way compared to Armando Iannucci's other work. And um, if you're a fan of Ben Whishaw, he plays a fucking repulsive character in this. Gross as shit. <laughs> Which is always entertaining because like he's just so beautiful and charming. It's like, not in this, bitch. He's like a disgusting toad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. I haven't read David Copperfield, but I'm going to before I see it. And um, this is Dickens' autobiographical novel, uh, which is interesting. It's weird. I, like It, it yeah. literally opens He's with weird. him experiencing his own birth. It's yeah. like an experimental novel. <laughs> yeah. I was really amused by American critics being like, ugh, this is so sentimental. I was expecting, you know, like his biting whatever. Like Armando's- <laughs> it's Dickens. What about like fucking Death of Little Nell? <laughs> they were like, all these side characters are so like over the top, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I, I mean, I don't expect everyone to have working knowledge of Dickens, but if you're reviewing a Dickens movie, perhaps you could have some concept of the fact that this is what literally all Dickens is like. like also, I this don't is like less sentimental. I generally am not like going to walk up for a Dickens movie because I'm just like, I don't actually want to watch a movie about people like dying in Victorian times while crying on each other and getting married. But in this one, it's like, it's funny and it's satirical. You've got like, I mean, obviously they're all funny and satirical, but this one is like more funny and satirical. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I wished that had been at New York because we had no British films. So that would have been a fun one. But alas, must wait till January. So another one that we both saw, however was Atlantics, which won the second place prize at Cannes. And you will all be able to watch on Netflix. Very soon. It is by Maddie Diop, who was a first-time director. She had acted in a Claire Denis film previously called 35 Shots of Rum, which I saw ages ago and don't remember very well, but she was very good in it. And um, it is a France slash Senegal production. It's going to be Senegal's entry for the Oscars this year, and it takes place in Senegal, outside of Dakar, of course, or in outside of Dakar. And uh, it was a big deal in this one, the prize at Cannes, because no black woman had ever even been in the competition as a director at Cannes before, and then it won second place. And um, I really, really liked this movie. I thought it was not perfect. I think it has some issues, but it really struck me, especially since it was one of the first things I saw at the festival that I really liked. And um, if you, if people are familiar with Claire Denis' films at all, she did High Life earlier this year, which we talked about in a previous episode. I think you can clearly see her influence in this movie. It's its own thing for sure. But I mean, I would, I would really straightforwardly describe this as a fairy tale. It really felt like yeah. almost like it might have been an adaptation of just a folk tale from a thousand years ago. But it is very, very contemporary and original. Yeah, you so... liked it more than me, though. I was a bit like, it's fine, but you know, yeah. So it's set, again, in Dakar, and the main character is this um, young woman, teenager, really, who is set to marry this older man who has a lot of money. Uh, so her parents are very excited about that. Uh, but she's having this sort of affair with this man her own age, or closer to her own age, um, called Suleiman, who is a construction worker. 
And the movie opens on all these construction workers who are trying to get paid for the last three months of their work on this huge sort of futuristic tower by the sea. And the they're not being paid. And they wind up traveling by ship to try to get to Europe, which doesn't work out for them. And so they kind of open the movie, but they don't stay in it very long. And a lot of the film is about their absence. But it focuses on these young women, in particular, this one central character. and. Um, I thought that it was just really interesting in terms of its depiction of all of these young women in this subsection of society and their different kind of approaches to things. They are all Muslim, but have different approaches to that. And the main character... I think this may actually be, may well be the first film I've seen where the cast are incidentally Muslim. Yes. It's that rare that a film <laughs> comes out in the English-speaking world in a mainstream way where it's like, this isn't like a film about Islam. It's like just set in a place where everyone yes. is incidentally Muslim and has like a variety of different kind of attitudes yeah. to their faith. I mean, it's definitely important to the movie, but it's not the point. And yeah. the main character is not a devout person at all. Yeah. And one of the things I enjoyed so much about it was that she is such a teenager. <laughs> like... She really is. She's not really that smart. She's not really that communicative. (laughs) And she is really, really upset, understandably, when her sort of boyfriend, kind of, who she's not supposed to be seeing, disappears and reacts as many a teenage girl would do by, like, lying in her bed, sleeping, refusing to talk to people, including the guy (laughs) she's supposed to be marrying. And, um, but the movie is very sympathetic to her while also depicting her in this way that's like, maybe you should not be, like, what's going on here? And does a really good job depicting the class divide between these various groups of people in this place. So most of the main characters live in this very sort of working class area of the city. And then you'll have these glimpses of this like unbelievable sort of high end development, right? So like this tower that they're working on, which is just like clearly exploiting people who are so desperate for work that they are willing to go and potentially drown in the ocean. Yes. And then um, the guy that she actually does wind up marrying, although it doesn't work out for her, is very wealthy. And he takes her out for lunch at this luxury hotel that looks exactly like any luxury hotel you would find anywhere in the world that is, you know, in a warm climate. And this sort of surreal disparity between those two ways of existence is really emphasized in the movie and everyone in the movie is very aware of this fact and some people are sort of encouraging her to marry this guy anyway because he has so much money and some of them are not suggesting that because they know she's gonna be unhappy and i thought all of that was handled really fascinatingly then what winds up happening is there's sort of a supernatural element that comes into the film which is part of what makes it interesting but also i think the least successful thing in the movie, I think it's just not fully worked out and not really integrated enough into the film. The rules of this supernatural thing that happens, if you try to think about what those rules might be, don't actually make any sense. And I'm not looking for like someone to sit down and explain to me in the movie like what all the rules are for what's happening. But um, there's one secondary character in particular who's a police officer whose role in the movie just like does not make sense. Like fully just like I it doesn't work. So I found that a bit frustrating, but I overall was really taken with it. And the fact that it's a first movie, I like is very impressive. And the visuals are like amazing. She made like a 
a short film 10 years ago and then evolved this from the short film and I think predominantly the actors she has for this are first-time performers and they all just do a really good job um I think also this may be the film just superficially speaking with the best looking cast of uh, any movie (laughs) I saw at the London Film Festival very good looking (laughs) um but yeah I think I mean I I quite like this film but I don't think I enjoyed it as much as you it does kind of meander quite a lot. I didn't have the same issues with the supernatural stuff, which I found relatively comprehensible, although the police guy, I think, could have dealt with a bit more explaining. Um, but something I kind of would have preferred is... So obviously it's kind of... It's essentially about this whole community and it's about the experience of people leaving um, to try and migrate and then the difficulties that ensue and that sort of thing. So it's like, it's a group story and the supernatural thing is a group story. But the whole thing is obviously hinging on this main character and her uh, relationship with this guy. But like, you don't really get enough of their relationship initially. And I think, I mean, obviously, intentionally, they're just kind of portraying it as like a normal teen romance. But I was sort of like, I kind of would have preferred it to be like a more, more of a romance, just so there was more kind of to ground that love story initially. And that would have made it into a different kind of story. But I think it also would have worked better for me if, if it was like that. I wasn't bothered by that so much because it felt to me like it was so much about her. I don't want to say overreaction because she obviously is very upset about a thing that is legitimate to be upset about, but I'm sort of contradicting myself because the way the movie ends is very much meant to suggest that it is like a grand romance. Yeah. This is the thing, right? Cause like the general overall structure of the film it's basically like these are all things that have happened to this woman rather than this is a love story. But there are other elements of the film that are like this is a love story, especially the fact that it's just like the the whole framing of it is very kind of fairy tale like and it's like, you know, lovers torn apart. Yes. So it's kind of not one or the other. I think my issues are manifesting with the supernatural stuff and your issues are manifesting with the romance stuff, which are tied together. But it's the same. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to articulate this exactly again without spoiling it. And I don't want to because I think what winds up happening in the movie is pretty interesting and I wasn't really expecting it. But um, my sense of what happened with this movie was that she had a clear idea of how she wanted it to end. And instead of like figuring out how to make this narrative organically work to get to that point, she engineered backwards to figure that out. And that never works. It just does not. I mean, like, if you can do that and mask it, then sure. But I saw another movie at this festival to the ends of the earth, which was a Japanese film. And like the first three quarters of it were so good. It's about this woman who's a TV presenter um, in Japan. And she's on this sort of travel show in Uzbekistan. And she's not having a good time. And I was so into it. I was like, best movie of the festival like wow and then the last quarter was just like this bonkers like what the fuck is going on because the director clearly had like an endpoint that he wanted to get to and had worked this is my you know assessment based on what i saw worked backwards from there to sort of like reverse engineer it and it just it doesn't work it just doesn't work like it you know and i think with atlantics she had wound up with this police officer character who i referred to who doesn't really work because she needed to achieve a certain thing to get to that endpoint and so she winds up with this like ancillary character who makes no logical sense in the movie and like his personality doesn't is really compelling and so you know there are just sort of things that don't quite sync up but i found the stuff that was compelling about the film so compelling that you know it wasn't my favorite movie of the festival but i would like highly recommend it to people anyway particularly since it's going to be on netflix so you can just watch it it's very it's very immersive as well yeah 
well, I think I said in the review that I wrote, like, Claire Denis is really good at conveying location and place and then also this mood of slight like offness like there will often be something about her the story she's telling where there's just something kind of wrong and I felt that very strongly like both those things in this movie which I really enjoyed I'm also like 100% maybe 99% sure that she Claire Denis has a voice cameo in this movie which I have not seen anyone mention online but I'm like (laughs) sure it was her so that was fun for me as well so I'm just really curious to see what she winds up directing next. I think it will be really interesting. And it's it's fun to have a new female filmmaker who's good. So congratulations to Maddie Diop for this this good movie. I think a lot of people are going to be watching this when it comes out on Netflix. Because yeah. it's like, it's a film that's going to be on Netflix that is actually respectable and is not full of famous people. It's kind of, it's got that nice kind of indie, but like genre romance crossover, you know. Yeah. So... My last note on that actually would be that I am not an expert in like Senegal at all. And this movie managed without ever being pandering or explaining things for a Western audience. Like, I don't think they were thinking about this at all. But the movie was so well done in terms of setting that I felt like I got what was happening the whole time. Yeah, I was like, hey, here's Senegal. A yeah, place I really don't know anything about. <laughs> yeah, like I felt like I understood the dynamics between the characters and the class stuff, and like, and obviously I'm not like a complete ignoramus. Like I know things about the world, but I don't know all the specific details yeah. about this place. And I was really impressed by that because I've definitely seen movies where I just don't know what's happening, and sometimes that can be that like you're just missing certain cultural signifiers because you don't know them, which is not the movie's fault and sometimes it's because the movie just has not done a good job of actually establishing the setting and i thought that this movie did a really really good job with that so if you're like an american person who doesn't know anything about this like you should watch this movie anyway because you will have no difficulty i think figuring out what's going on it's just a compelling story i also saw at the new york film festival the first press screening of the irishman the new martin scorsese film which was very exciting because it was at eight o'clock in the morning. Every single film critic in New York was there. Every- queuing, fucking queuing at the first thing in the morning. <laughs> yes. I was in the big, big hall. Obviously fun to go to something like that. I unfortunately kept falling asleep because I was stoned on migraine medication. <laughs> I didn't actually fall asleep, but I was kind of like nodding off, which was not a great way to experience a three and a half hour movie. This film's main claim to fame is indeed that it is three and a half hours Very long. So I would like to see this again. I really am not thrilled that this situation happened with a movie this long that I now feel like I have to see a second time. No intermission, of course, in this movie. I would love to see the eventual Netflix stats on where everyone just pieces the fuck out in this film. Right. Because when you have control over the pause button, ugh. Yeah, the big, the main virtue of seeing this in a theater, I think. I mean, it's it's a very handsome movie. Obviously, like Martin Scorsese knows what he's doing. It looks good. But the best thing about seeing it in a theater definitely is that you're just forced to sit there. You can't and watch escape. The whole thing no escape in row. And the length does this movie have to be three and a half hours long? Probably not. But it moves at a good clip. Like I don't think it's a huge problem. And I like when you go to see a movie that's two and a half hours long, like you've seen a movie that's that long before and you kind of have a vague sense of what that's going to be. And I'm always like, Oh God, that's so long. And, or like it chapter two is I think two hours and 40 minutes and it's fucking boring. Right. So I was sitting there and I was like, Jesus Christ, when is this going to end? 
Whereas with the Irishman, it's so long. You that go into I was like a fugue like, state. Yeah, like I just lost any sense of time. It was like, well, I'm going to be here all day. So, and so I wasn't really bothered by the length. I came out of it and was like, it's fine, I guess. And then literally every other critic I've seen respond to this at New York and London has been like, it's a masterpiece. So I feel like I have to watch it again in a um, sober state of mind to have a fair assessment. But I thought it was fine. Like, I don't really understand what people are reacting to. Maybe I will get it better I when I watch it you again. might just be right. Yeah. To be clear, like, I don't think this is a terrible movie at all. Like, again, Martin Scorsese doesn't really make terrible films. Um, I am not a huge fan of all his movies, but he doesn't I mean, make every like, film stinkers. of his that I've seen, I thought was great. Yeah. And we both watched his movie that's about Jesuit priests getting tortured for three hours. So Right. So the movie of his that I like the least is probably Hugo, which I do actually think is Oh, bad. I've forgotten that one. That's a dumb movie. But yeah. you know, I it's kind not of technically disqualified bad, that. But like, it's it's a bad movie. Silence, which came out a couple years ago, I love. I, it's probably my favorite Scorsese. I think it's amazing. That's the one about Jesuit priests yes. being tortured for three hours. And so this movie is about uh, Jimmy Hoffa, who was a union boss who was corrupt. And takes place over several decades. And Robert De Niro plays this guy who kind of starts out very low down on the totem pole and winds up getting into his inner circle. And Joe Pesci plays this other mob boss figure who's the third part of this triumvirate. And they do a lot of CGI de-aging, which everyone had been talking about. And um, it's not nearly as bad as I was expecting it to be. De Niro definitely looks the worst. He, they made his eyes bright blue also. I do not understand why, because that is the most distracting thing, because that's not what his eyes look like, and it's just freaky and weird. I was like, Maybe why have you done this? Maybe it was just subtextually hinting that he's a vampire. Like, what the fuck? And so, like, it's, when it starts out, he's supposed to be around 40 years old, because it takes place, like, 20 years after World War II, and that's the chronology of his age of the movie. And he does not look 40. He looks this weird, sort of undead age. It's just, like, not... <laughs> And also, was it you who was saying that you can just tell from their physicality that they're being played by old men? Yes. Anytime <laughs> someone has to run, which they usually don't, but it's mostly De Niro who I think has to run. You're just like, mm, this man's no, fucking that's... 75 years old. Yep. <laughs> and like, I understand why they did it this way, because the whole point is that it's over this long span of time and it's this huge movie and whatever. And again, the technology was mostly okay. It works better on Pesci than De Niro, and I'm not sure how much of it they did on Pacino. Like, they definitely did it, but not as severely, I think. But I think it did distance me from the movie, even if it wasn't as horrible as I was anticipating. Like, you're still kind of... I was still thrown out of it a bit, which is sort of an inevitable result of doing something like that. But all the critics going on and on about, you know, this is completely new ground. Oh, my God. Blah, blah, blah. And it is true that Scorsese has not made an old man movie before, which is what this winds up turning into because it covers such a long span of time. But everyone being like, the last hour of this movie is less Goodfellas and more silence. I was like, have you seen silence a movie where people talk about God for three hours? Because <laughs> let me tell you, this is not that. Like, what the fuck? And the just desire for things to be serious. like serious and deep. Like, I, I just... It's a gangster movie. He's made them before, and so have others. <laughs> and this is not particularly like 
Goodfellas, like tonally and stylistically, it's very different. Although obviously that comparison is going to be in your head if you've seen Goodfellas before, because it is a gangster movie by Martin Scorsese. But the last part of the movie is all about these people aging and sort of having to reckon or not reckon, depending on what they've done and the sort of relationships falling apart and et cetera, et cetera. And I literally saw an Italian movie called The Traitor, which was bad, where it, it was it's a biopic about the guy who was the informant for the government on the Costa Nostra in the 90s, who was like resettled to America and witness protection because they were going to kill him and et cetera. And you really had to have a lot of knowledge about this real life person to follow what was going on, which I did not. But the whole last part of that movie is all about this guy getting older and paranoid and like his, he's betrayed people he knew. And all of the stuff people are saying is like unique about the Irishman thematically is in this movie that I had seen a week before at the same film festivals. I was like, I don't really like. Also the Godfather. Yes. Like (laughs) there is no new territory under the sun for gangster movies, it has all been covered. And that's fine. That doesn't mean this genre shouldn't exist. Like romantic comedies are still getting made and I love them and they've all pretty, like it's pretty much been done. But I just don't quite understand the reaction. And I, like again, like it moves at a good clip. It's very watchable, but I didn't find it that deep. And the writing was sort of fine, but I didn't think that great. And there are no women in this film. Like, Anna Paquin, I think, has one or two lines of dialogue. Genuinely, the women speak so little, it is astonishing. Like, they just don't talk. It's not that there aren't movies that are all about men that I love. Like, my favorite movie is There Will Be Blood, and there basically are no women in that. Yeah, we all like A Lord of the Rings. Right, yeah, exactly. But if you make a three and a half hour movie about the mob and just don't have anything about their wives except for them complaining in the car about not being able to smoke their cigarettes like i just don't know what to tell you like the wives and goodfellas who are if it's the only women in that are the, the wives but they're so much more fleshed out than in this and i wouldn't call that like a triumph of feminist cinema or anything but i just i remember like, there being women in that right yes one of the most memorable scenes in that movie involves one of the female characters and I just was like, you know what? Really? Okay, sure. Joe Pesci is very good in this movie. He's playing the one with the most pathos. Al Pacino is doing Al Pacino in a very fun way. He shouts a lot. <laughs> but like, in a, sometimes when he does that, it's just like, please stop. And in this, it was like, it was very entertaining. I, I do enjoy this rating of The Irishman, though. It's like, factually, it's three and a half hours long. It is for and about old men. Al Pacino shouts a lot. But you did like it. Fair. But like, not so much though. Like it was, you know, it was okay. It was acceptable. It was not a terrible film, but like, I just am baffled by the degree to which everyone is like losing their minds over it. And again, I will watch it again and perhaps I will have a different experience, but I don't. I mean, I think partly it's just like a bit of a culture war thing. Yes. And Oftentimes when you have these film festival screenings or like just early screenings of a movie in general that's been highly anticipated, people will just kind of freak out. What I always think of is when Les Miserables, a famously hated movie, screened for the first time for the press, I think in New York, everyone came out and was like, it's going to win the Academy Award, a Les, masterpiece. Les Mis? Oh Maybe yes, that this fa- happened. Because I saw that film. I saw and I heard that film. <laughs> oh, 
so did we all. But the first screening where everybody gets this to... This is truly wild. Yeah, everyone... Specially invited. And it's very exciting. And everyone got really excited about it and thought it was great. And then those same people, I remember tweeting like two months later, were like, actually, this film's really bad. <laughs> Something you definitely think about at film festivals when you've actually been to these things seriously, it's just like the experience is so utterly different from going to the movies, right? Because it's like, you know, film buffs will go to the movies a few times a month. Most people will go to the movies actually at the cinema a few times a year, which is why these big spectacle films like The Avengers succeed. Because like, if you're paying 20 bucks, then you want to get something that's reliable. But like, if you're at a film festival, you are seeing, you know, two, three, maybe four films in one day. And as Morgan and I have both intimated, you often are getting up very early in the morning for, to see that. Basically throughout the London Film Festival, the way they kind of schedule the screenings is for the press screenings. The first one is at 8 or 8.30 a.m. And then you have another one at 10 or 11. And then you have another one at 1 or 2 or like 2 or 3. You know, you have like a kind of a morning, a lunchtime and an afternoon. And if you are watching a movie that you have got up at 6 a.m. to see, then traveled across the hellscape that is London public transport to queue up in Leicester Square in the rain for half an hour, and then you've sat down in a screening full of critics, it is a weird experience. And um, the fact that I enjoyed Marriage Story, a film about straight people being divorced after queuing at half past seven in the morning in the rain, indicates that that movie is a fucking masterpiece. <laughs> because that is not that is not like a positive mindset for me. <laughs> not a positive body set either. <laughs> um, but yeah, like there were there were just a few films which I I mean I I think I saw like Call Me by Your Name a, a, like a first thing in the morning screening. I think I saw yeah. There's just like a few really genius films that I've just seen in the weirdest possible scenario. We saw La La Land very early in the morning, which was interesting. Mm. And cause I tried really hard to like that, and by the end I was like no. And we definitely saw Manchester by the Sea at London, but I can't remember what time it was. But that was a great experience with watching something with critics because everyone laughed hysterically the entire time. And that is a very dark movie, but also yes. very funny. <laughs> it's a very upsetting film. I think Bill like Lalalan just isn't very good. I think we're right. Yes, correct. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's obviously a huge privilege to get to see these things yeah. in these contexts. But I think it sometimes does warp your view of things in one way or the other. And like getting to see the Irishman at the first screening. And then I didn't actually stay for the press conference because I was like, I'm not into this enough to do this. But like Al Pacino and Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci and the producers all came out for a press conference after the And fact. you get to see how short they all are. Yes. Every single actor in this film was wearing lifts. There was a <laughs> photo of one of them just wearing like eight inch heels. Yep. Because they got to fit them all in the shot and they're all about yep. between the heights of about five foot three and five foot eight. So. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and all everyone's like tweeting hysterically about that, which like I understand because these are like legends of cinema, right? I mean, I walked by Scorsese on the sidewalk a couple months ago and was like, oh my God. <laughs> It's <laughs> Martin Scorsese. Um, but that does affect your experience, right? You also saw an old man movie. I did. I saw The Two Popes, which I feel is an impressively self-explanatory title. <laughs> this is directed by Brazilian filmmaker Fernando Moraes, and it is written by Anthony McCartan, which is the intriguing element of this film. Anthony McCartan is primarily a playwright, but he is better known for his film work. He wrote... 
three very banal biopics, actually two banal biopics and one appalling biopic. So Theory of Everything, Darkest Hour and Bohemian Rhapsody. I think we can all agree that those films are not known for like their insightful genius. They are known for being absolutely middle of the road, straightforward biopics. And in one of those cases, generally known for being quite offensive. However, this film is, it's also kind of biographical. It's based on real life characters. Clearly he has a lot of skill for kind of research and so forth. It's also based on a play he did, but it's like, it's a straightforward two-hander. You have Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price playing the current Pope and the previous Pope. So I assume most people are aware of this, but uh, the previous Pope, Pope Benedict XVI, he abdicated, he resigned rather than dying and being replaced, which is the traditional method. And um, he was replaced by the current Pope who is who was known as Cardinal Baroglio and he is now known as Pope Francis. And kind of the transition here was like, it was a period of tremendous scandal. Obviously the Catholic Church is in a constant state of tremendous scandal, but there were multiple scandals happening kind of at the point of Pope Benedict stepping down. He was also very elderly, not in great health. And kind of Francis is viewed as sort of the more liberal, friendlier Pope compared to the previous Pope who also had some kind of Nazi backstory and was not known for being a particularly charming or nice person. And this film is kind of a, Basically, it's just 100% just chats between these two men. <laughs> and Anthony Hopkins, Jonathan Price, you have seen them in a million things. They're both great. And this film is like a really funny and charming movie. It it takes place basically before Pope number one decides to step down and replace Pope number two. It's very easy to understand, even if you know nothing about the Catholic Church and have not watched the important documentary series, The Young Pope, which obviously Morgan and I have. It shows these two characters who obviously have very peculiar lives and are like have dedicated their lives to organized religion and both have kind of rather different philosophies. You know, there's a very obvious and straightforward difference between them. Like Pope Francis, the second Pope, is kind of portrayed as a very sort of you know, he's like a straightforwardly saint-like figure in many ways. Like the movie doesn't shy away from him, darker elements of his past, but it's still like, this is someone who genuinely kind of wants to help people and wants to help the poor. And then Pope Benedict, you know, he's much more conservative. He doesn't really understand how to be friendly and engage with people socially on like in like an easy manner. And also, of course, he's been in fucking charge of the Catholic Church during these horrifying scandals, which in, like, it, there's obviously kind of financial stuff, but the most public part is obviously the fact that there's just this massive child abuse problem throughout the church. And watching this film, it's just really enjoyable. Both actors give a tremendous performance. It's, it's edited in a really fun way. There's lots of really fun music choices. It's quite quirky without feeling twee. It was just like a really entertaining film that was about two men talking about theology for two hours, which is rare. And it also kind of did make me think quite a lot about sort of the discussions we have a lot, especially now online, about fictional and real life depictions of bad people and kind of whether watching and paying for those things is an endorsement and like what pieces of art shouldn't be made and that sort of thing. And I don't really have a good answer to that because while this movie it definitely doesn't shy away from kind of the damages that Catholic Church has caused and especially uh, Pope Benedict. Like it, like this is a very funny performance from Anthony Hopkins, right? He's great. And the character is very amusing, but it also really does a great job of kind of balancing the fact that you are laughing at this character and he's funny without being like, oh, this is like a, actually a relatable person. They've humanized him, but humanizing doesn't necessarily mean like you're on board with this guy, right? It's like, 
literally like kind of part of the final act of the film is him just straightforwardly admitting that he was aware that there were priests and cardinals who were abusing children in his organization he wasn't doing anything about it you know which was kind of unexpected because it's like you must have had to have like a lot of access to make this film and stuff but i kind of felt like the way it portrays the new pope pope francis was like too positive and obviously kind of narratively you want to have this thing where it's like oh it's a happy ending because we've got like the better new pope and i'm like he's still in charge of the catholic church and the catholic church is still kind of doing a lot of this shit like there's stories coming out every day this film kind of implies that pope francis fixed all the problems well and he was also covering up a lot of stuff yeah because it's like once you get to that level you know if you're like an everyday person who's a member of the religion it's like completely different from when you are at the top because you've had to have you know been promoted through ranks of people who've been involved in this kind of corruption it's like a fucking nightmare so you know I have a lot of complicated feelings on this film, but in terms of writing and acting, good job. Yeah, I think this is going to be a huge hit. I mean, it's a Netflix movie, so financially, we'll never know because they don't release uh, box office and they don't uh, release movies for more than a month. But uh, I think it's going to get a lot of Oscar nominations and be talked about a lot because the older people will be very into it and people really want, I think something about the catholic church that's like moderately positive yeah i think is the general cultural sentiment because the hard truth that it is an irredeemable corrupt organization from the top is not palatable to people because there's not really anything we can do about it um i mean i'm looking forward to seeing this because it's gotten good reviews and i like acting but um yeah it'll be really interesting to see how how it is received by the public so that is it for our big discussion topics i think we wanted to hit a few brief things or at least i did um because i saw a couple other movies that were worthy of of brief note the first is kelly reichardt's uh first cow kelly reichardt did uh her last film was certain women which we talked about a couple years ago we enjoyed it went saw it in london um great movie and this is another kind of small, slow movie set in the American West in uh, the early 19th century. And it's basically a story about the friendship between this uh, white man who's a cook and a Chinese man who's also living in this frontier town. They kind of cook up a scheme to uh, steal milk from the first cow in the territory to sell biscuits. <laughs> That's what this film is about. Hand <laughs> to God. Delightful. Delightful. Well, and also it. dark in certain <laughs> ways, but literally it is about the first cow in the territory and milk stealing uh, and a beautiful friendship. And she makes movies for like $4, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That explains this. <laughs> yep. And the actors were both excellent. I really, really liked this movie. It was one of, it wasn't one of my you know, top movies at the festival, but I, I liked it a lot. It's coming out from A24 next year. So that will be like six months or something, but um, really enjoyable. And then the other two were... Um, this Russian movie Beanpole, which I did not particularly care for, and a lot of other critics were really into. And um, it's Russia's submission for the, um, it's now called International Films, the Oscar name. Um, and I suspect it will make the shortlist, uh, although we'll, we'll see. But um, it takes place very shortly after the Second World War in, I want to say, Stalingrad. And is about these two women who had been in the military and now wind up working as nurses. And one of them, who's nicknamed Beanpole, is extremely, extremely tall. And she's taking care of this toddler who is the child of the other one who's 
not yet working at the hospital. And she has a neurological condition as a result of the war where she has these seizures where she freezes up. And within the first 15 minutes of the movie, she smothers this child to death, which, interesting, it's the cutest baby you've ever seen, and then it (laughs) dies. And that's just the beginning. There is lots of sexual violence. There's euthanasia. There's blackmail. There's um, surely other things that are not immediately coming to my mind. I was just morbidly like, what will they do next to these poor people? You see, I don't want to watch this, but I kind of want to recommend it to my friend who reads nothing but like old Russian novels. I mean, there you go. Sure. There's there's an audience for it. Yep. And um, the actresses are both very good. The Filmmaking is technically accomplished. The director is like 28 years old, um, which is obviously very impressive. And there are so a lot of, again, a lot of the critics just like, oh, great movie. And I was like, I don't know. It feels a little bit, a little bit bleak to me. Like just so much that was just absurd. And um, it wasn't misogynistic or anything, but the director is a man. And it just felt a little bit like a man who with what felt like good intentions to me, like trying to tell Stories about, like, really difficult stuff that, you know, women had to deal with about, you know, pregnancy and sexual violence and stuff, but without actually fully understanding those topics. And so instead of having a realistic story, it was, like, extreme on every level. And I was like, we don't need this. Like, this is just too much. But I think that movie's going to come up a lot in the next two months, so I wanted to mention it on this episode. And the last one I will mention is another Italian movie called Martin Eden, which bizarrely was not Italy's submission to the Oscars. They picked The Traitor, the mob movie I mentioned, which is just uh, shitty. So good job, Italy, I guess. And Martin Eden is based on a Jack London novel, which takes place in San Francisco, but they moved it to Naples. And um, it takes place, uh, again, sort of post-World War II, similar setting to the Elena Ferrante Neapolitan Quartet, if people have read and liked those books. And it's a sort of lower class guy who winds up falling in love with an upper class young woman and decides he's going to educate himself in order to sort of be with her. And then he becomes obsessed with books and wants to be a writer. And uh, the first three quarters, uh, four fifths of this movie, I really, really enjoyed. And then the end, again, just bad. So what are you going to do? But the best thing to recommend this movie beyond its um, general interesting content, beautiful cinematography, etc., is that the lead actor, super hot, just <laughs> tremendous, like, oh, so hot. I went out and was talking to someone afterwards, and we were both just like, it was really hot, though. Like, he was really, really hot. In a way that American actors aren't really anymore, like, he was a man. None of this Timothy Chalamet, like, beautiful, young, graceful man thing. No, this was like a, a man's man, super hot guy, and I appreciated that. You need a little bit of that in a film festival, I find. Lots of movies that you're watching. And um, (laughs) if you want to experience that, Martin Eden. Good movie, kind of, with a hot dude. So that's my pitch to you, listeners. If you want to see a movie with a hot guy, that's the one. (laughs) My dispatch from the New York Film Festival. My highly intellectual commentary on the movies is that that's the one with the hottest dude. So there you go. You're welcome. Do you have any last thoughts on your experience at London? Anything you would like to highlight? Yeah, I actually, I saw a bunch of other movies. I think we're just going to put links to some of the others that I reviewed in the show notes. Because like, whatever, I saw a horror movie with Army Hammer. 
um, called Wounds, which was made some errors, but I found unintentionally very entertaining. <laughs> I think people are going to have fun watching that one, but it was stupid. Also, the, the the torture report movie starring Adam Driver, which is just a really straightforward, real life, here's what happened with the US torture report situation. But because it stars Adam Driver, protagonist is very well acted. Unreasonably so for a boring film. <laughs> uh, Vivarium, which is a weird little sci-fi film that stars Imogen Poots and Jesse Eisenberg. And I kind of want to know why they're making this like tiny movie with an unknown Irish filmmaker, but good. What a little low budget like sci-fi horror film about two people getting stuck in the suburbs. I liked it. But I think, yeah, kind of the two smaller weirder indie films that I would recommend. Kind of the second of the two is Little Joe, kind of a sci-fi film by the Austrian filmmaker Jessica Hausner. And it's such a stylish movie. The use of color in this movie is it's very obvious. Like it's very kind of stylized and looks almost like a children's book illustration because there's a lot of like blocks of color and stuff. But it's about a scientist uh, played by the British actress Emily Beecham, who actually won the Best Actress Prize at Cannes this year for this role. And uh, she kind of invents this uh, plant, this flower, which uh, makes you happy. If you look after it, it makes you happy. And uh, the secondary character is played by Ben Whishaw, who is like her fellow scientist who's kind of into her. And it's this dystopian, very simple sci-fi story about like what would happen if you invented a, a flower that makes people happy. And I just, I found this movie kind of like perversely funny, which was intentional. Like it's very stylish. I enjoyed it. I do feel like there is the potential that the central allegory of this movie might be some kind of weird ass, like shitty commentary on antidepressants. And I couldn't actually, I couldn't stay around for the Q&A afterwards to ask the director about this. If it turns out she is making some kind of weird commentary about how antidepressants are like a bad plant that's going to poison everyone's brains and turn you into pod people, obviously garbage. However, pretty entertaining film, very unique, very stylish, and uh, got Ben Whishaw in it. Uh, <laughs> but my much more wholehearted recommendation, which is just, this movie is just so good, so good. It's called And Then We Danced. It is a Georgian film, as in European Georgia. Um, and it is about traditional Georgian folk dancers. You may have seen some like YouTube videos or clips of this, but it's the kind of dance where it's like mostly men, very kind of butch dancing, lots of leaping around, squatting. It's extremely physical, very aggressive, very like highly skilled. And this film is kind of a cross between Billy Elliot and Call Me By Your Name, but it's about Georgian folk dancers. It's very, very entertaining and charming and romantic and delightful. The main character... Sorry, Morgan, were you going to say something? Oh, I was just going to say I've heard, like, amazing things about this <laughs> from multiple people, so I'm excited. Yeah, so, so this film is, like, it's like an independent Georgian movie that is also extremely accessible, and anyone who likes this kind of movie will fucking die when they watch it. <laughs> um, you will go out of it being like, I love Georgian dance, but also with, like, a pretty realistic vision of how very difficult it is to be gay in Georgia. The background of this film is they had difficulty filming in many places with people knowing what the subject matter was. The guy who did the choreography for the Georgian dance in it had to do so anonymously. He is credited anonymously because otherwise it would damage his career. Like things are intense there. But basically the main character is this late teens, early twenties guy who is uh, very poor, comes from a poor family in Georgia. He uh, is training to become a traditional Georgian dancer, as is his older brother. Um, and he's been doing this for clearly, basically almost his whole life. And he comes from a family of traditional dancers. And they go to what essentially feels like ballet school, but for this particular dance form. And a new guy comes to the school who is kind of charming and gregarious. And you can kind of tell there's something going on between them. And, you know, eventually as the film progresses, they fall in love 
And it's just like, it's a very emotionally vibrant film. The two guys are played by first time actors. The main guy who is like stunningly good (laughs) is actually a modern dancer who the director recruited by finding him on Instagram video and just stalked him on Instagram until he agreed to film some scenes and learn how to do Georgian dance properly. Like it's one of these things where kind of like in Scotland, you do Kayleigh dance at school, like you do some at school when you were a kid. So he knew how to do it, but it was like, this guy wasn't an actor and he had to be persuaded to act in the film. And when I was watching it all the way through, it was like my whole body was like, I, I kept like just like dying in my seat, like curling up into a ball of awkwardness. Cause it's like, he's playing this character who is so kind of young and fresh. That all of his feelings are just instantly obvious all the time. So it's glaringly obvious he has a crush on this guy at school. And he's also not particularly straight acting. And it's kind of a story about young love and also the fact that there is just no way that he can stay in the closet like in this environment like it's just no, it's not going to be viable long term and he has to kind of juggle that with the fact that he really desperately wants to become a Georgian dancer which is this really homophobic like masculine macho performance and kind of culture and it's just like it's just like a very entertaining and satisfying and romantic movie with some fantastic music choices. This film has ABBA in it because the director, who is Swedish-Georgian, previously made a film co-produced by one of the members of ABBA, so he was able to get ABBA music in there. And once you've got ABBA, you can get Robin. So there's a whole Robin sequence. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's yeah, it's, it's just great. I think this the, everyone I know who has seen this movie has just been like, ah, it's perfect. Great film. I'm really excited about this one. I have no idea what the US release situation is. I think it's going to be on Netflix, perhaps. But um, yeah, I, I don't know what the release situation is, but it's called And Then We Danced. And um, it's going to have a long shelf life. People are going to enjoy this film. <laughs> uh, which is good for the filmmakers. Congratulations to them. Yeah, so that concludes our dispatch from the New York and London film festivals. Uh, as always, we recommend people attend these events if you live in these areas. Uh, even though this wasn't the best New York film festival that I have been to, it's a really exciting thing that happens in the city. They also, at both these festivals, they have lots of revival screenings and stuff that we obviously were not talking about today, but um, lots of cool stuff going on. Uh, and we will have full episodes on The Lighthouse and Knives Out in the coming weeks and months. We sure so will. <laughs> we will have much more talk about those because uh, I haven't seen them yet. Uh, and I'm sure we'll be talking about Parasite over the course of the Oscar season more. And Gavio will eventually see it when it makes its UK release in February. But all great movies. We hope that you will avail yourself of the opportunity to see some of the stuff that we've discussed. Um, good year for films like it has genuinely been a really good year you got marriage story and uh portrait lady on fire and parasite those three are to me are just like perfect basically which even if i wasn't in love with a lot of the other stuff i saw to have three that were that good was pretty excellent so all right where can our readers find you and your work online yeah, you can find my work on The Daily Dot. We're going to put like a bunch of links to reviews in the show notes to this. And you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. I am on Twitter at ML Davies. Uh, if you want to see some reviews for movies that I saw at New York and other fun stuff, you can follow us on Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Uh, our Twitter is at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is at overinvestedpodcast. And our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.